With that, we're going to go on to the minor prophets again. I bet you're beginning to wonder how many are there. Well, there's like 12. <laughs> so we'll probably be here for at least three more weeks. Um, I want to start, how many, how many of you ever heard of Frederick Nietzsche? Frederick Nietzsche. How many of you would like to forget what you know about him? Amen. <laughs> Frederick Nietzsche is a German philosopher. He passed away in about 1900. But his philosophy and some of his thoughts have permeated our culture, even yet today. He was an atheist his entire adult life. One of his most famous quotes written in one of his books was, God's dead. Now, you might think, first of all, that's a crazy thing for an atheist to say because they don't believe in God. What he really was saying wasn't the fact that God, a physical God or a spiritual God, died. What they're saying, he was saying is, God's dead because of science and philosophy. People are finally going to quit believing in this thing that doesn't exist. So the thought of a living God was going to die. And he made another comment that's quite famous. He wrote in one of his books, he says, if they, meaning Christians, he said, if they want me to believe in their Redeemer, they would have to sing better songs. And the disciples would have to look more like redeemed. And he said, I would believe only in a God who danced. Now, I'm pretty sure he said those things almost tongue-in-cheek, very sarcastically. I'd only believe in a God, a redeemer, who sings. I do agree with this statement. It'd be really good. I'd believe in a God who's redeemed, look more like redeemed. And then he added on, I only believe in a God who danced. The reality is, Scripture tells us we have a God who sings and dances. You know, Nietzsche's view of God or relationship with God, which was non-existent because you're an atheist, but our view of God often depends on, or our relationship, I should say, often depends on our view of God. In other words, my relationship with God depends on my view of God. My relationship with people oftentimes depends on how I view people. You know, I look at a person or evaluate a person, I learn about a person, and my relationship with that person is determined by that view. And when it comes to God, people have all kinds of different views of God. You know, sometimes I've shared that testimony about the Russian grandmother who would just look back, God would look back over his shoulder at times, and if she was doing okay, she'd just let him keep coming. But if, he wasn't, if she wasn't doing well, God would discipline her and beat her. So sometimes we have that idea that this God is just always waiting, looking, almost hoping he can catch us so he can punish us. Who'd want to serve a God like that? Somebody, sometimes we have this view of God, and I've heard this often. He's a God of nothing but rules and regulations. All he wants to do is ruin your fun. All he wants to do is take away your freedom to do what you like to do. I don't want to serve a God like that. That view of God would determine the relationship that a person had of God. The God that really doesn't care. You know, you've maybe heard the, the analogy of a, a, a clockmaker who makes the clock. The clock starts and the watchmaker never, watchmaker, clockmaker never looks at it again. Well, God created everything, put it in motion, and now he just walked away and he's not involved anymore. A very impersonal God. You have that kind of view of God? What's your relationship with God going to be like? Some of us have that view of God. Many people have that view of God. 
The reality is the Bible, if we take time to really read the Bible, we discover that the view of God that we should have is so different than all of those. He is a very personal God. He is a very relational God. He desires relationship with his people. He desires the best for his people. Yes, he will discipline his people because he loves his people and wants to draw them back to himself. But he is a God that wants relationship and intimacy with his people. And for those that know him as Lord and Savior, he is that kind of God. He is one that loves us and we can understand and believe and even sense in a, in a reality that most people couldn't understand. We know and feel his love, his mercy, his grace, the joy that we can have in knowing him at a personal level. In spite of what's going on all around us, in spite of what's going on in the world, you know, how can you people be so happy? How can you Christians be so happy? I just love when I hear that. What a compliment that is. It's not because we have our head in the sand. It's not because we never listen to the news. It's because we know who is in control of all things. We know who is the king, who is the creator. We know Jesus, and we know he knows us at a personal level. I just love the songs that we sang this morning because of what we're going to be looking at in Scripture today. You know, this picture of the bride and the bridegroom. The bridegroom and the bride. The bridegroom who wants to just come and rescue, sweep up his bride, rapture her away and take his bride with him, away from all of the the things of the earth. We sing about a good, good father, the God who loves us. We sing about the God who pursues us, this God who doesn't give up on us. You know, we might think that where is God? Where is he when I'm doing these things? Or I'm going to get away from him. I don't want anything to do with it anymore. Guess what? He is right there behind you waiting for you to just turn around. He is pursuing. And it doesn't matter what you try to do to, to run away. He's there. He's not necessarily going to grab you and turn you around. But his Holy Spirit will work in our hearts. This morning we're going to discover some things that I, you know, you can kind of wonder, you know, if Nietzsche said these things as an atheist, my guess is, and I don't know this, but my guess is, like I said, he was probably being very sarcastic and trying to really just humiliate and make fun of Christians who believed in this God when he said, I can only believe in a God who sings. And if you're going to, if I'm going to believe in your God, you've got to sing a lot better songs. And this God, I only believe in a God who dances. Now, I mean, really, who, who puts those two requirements on the God we believe in? Is that kind of one of, right at the top of your list? I only believe in a God who sings to me, and I'm only going to believe in him if he'll dance over me. Most of us don't think that way. But the reality is, if that's true, what in the world causes him to want to sing over us and dance over us? You know, I think about the reality of those six days of creation. God is just speaking these things and it, all that exists is coming into being. And after each day, he just looks around and goes, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Day after day, that's good. Until he came to man being alone, we know he said that's not good. If all of creation couldn't make him sing and dance, what in the world can? And we're going to hear about that in the craziest of places. The book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. 
The title of the message this morning, What Makes God Sing and Dance? What Makes Him Sing and Dance Over Us? And we can get into some kind of religious, theological, or philosophical discussion. Is God's spirit? Can he really sing? Can he really dance? I have the opinion God can do whatever he wants. So we won't go into that discussion. But if the Bible says he sings over us and he dances over us, I want to know why. And it's crazy to me when I start reading the book of Zephaniah that he chooses to tell us about it in this prophet's writings. So who is Zephaniah? Zephaniah, if we read verse 1 of Zephaniah, we get an idea of who he is because it's different than the rest. It gives us his lineage. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, and the son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. We go, ah, who cares about those names? Well, there's something interesting about those names. Is it looks like he is a prophet of royal descent. We don't know for 100% certainty, but when it says Hezekiah, Hezekiah was a king of Judah. If that's true, his great-great-grandfather was a king, and he's going to be prophesying. And he's prophesying primarily to Jerusalem. If you remember some of the other prophets we've talked about in these minor prophets, they came from very rural areas, out out in the middle of nowhere, farm boys, shepherds, out in that kind of country. He's different. He's an urban prophet. He's from Jerusalem. It appears that he came from royal lineage. And he's going to prophesy. And he tells us that he was prophesying at the time of Josiah. Now, not everybody gets interested in history, but it helps us to understand, I think, if we know a little bit. He prophesied. Josiah was king, became king when he was eight years old. Eight years old. The two previous kings, Manasseh and Ammon, were evil. Evil. Manasseh actually came to the Lord and repented before he died, but it was too late for the kingdom. And his son followed him, and he was even worse. So Zephaniah would have lived through parts of the first Manasseh, through the second one who didn't reign very long, and now he's around when Josiah's there. And Josiah, as an eight-year-old king, obviously he was probably being king by title only, and he had probably a bunch of uh, people telling him what to do. But it's interesting, if you go back in the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings and look at Josiah, you learn a few very interesting things. It says he became king at eight years old. Eight years later, or at 16 years of age, it says he sought the Lord. 16 years old, he sought the Lord. And just a few years later, at the age of 20, after seeking the Lord, he starts to destroy all the idols in the nation. 20 years old. Destroys them. And then a few years later, at the age of 26, he decides that he need, they need to restore the temple. And in the history of of Israel as a nation, the Jewish religion, this is an unbelievably significant event, and really for all of us. At the age of 26, he says, I want you to go and restore the temple. And as they go in and they're beginning to restore the temple, God, they've gotten rid of all the idols, all the other stuff, and they're restoring the temple, they come across something, the book of the law. 
the Word of God. At 26 years of age, 18 years into his kingship, his rule, revival breaks out because they find the book of the law and Josiah as king leads the nationwide repentance. And they repent and God moves. I believe Zephaniah was written before revival broke out, having experienced the darkness and the evil of King Manasseh, King Ammon, and then watching what happens with Josiah. But he writes it, and I believe Zephaniah, his prophetic word, is part of what led to this revival. And of all of the prophets, and, you know, and if you read all of these prophets, all of these prophets we've been talking about, this would be the ninth one. And he is the last one before the exile to Babylon that they've all been prophesying about. God's been warning him, you know, it's coming. If you don't square it away here, it's coming. I'm going to bring the armies from another place, and it's Babylon, and they're going to take you, destroy you, take you into exile. It's going to be really bad. So all these prophets, and guess what? Nobody's been listening. Nobody's been listening. And then Zephaniah prophesies. And I know if you want a word from the Lord, this is not the kind of word from the Lord you want. He is about as bold and blunt and in your face as you can get. His prophecy sort of summarizes all the others that we've heard so far, but just listen to verses 2 and 3. I will completely remove you, all things, from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man, I will remove beast, I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, and even the runes, the stumbling blocks. Along with the wicked, I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow. No beating around the bush with Zephaniah. God says, I've had enough. And he lays it out there as bluntly as blunt can be. The message, a harsh, harsh message. The people of Judah, of Israel, are going to be punished for the way they mocked their worship. There had been all of these idols. You know, it's the people, the Jewish people didn't say, ah, there is no God of Israel. They said, oh yeah, there's a God of Israel, but we're going to worship this God too and we're going to worship this God over here and we're going to worship this God. So here's a people, not, they're not denying God exists. They're just worshiping a whole lot of other stuff. And God's a jealous God. He's not going to put up with that forever. They had this divided religious loyalty that they thought was okay. Why? Because they wanted to keep that one foot in the world or that they just didn't want to give up. They wanted to live like the world. They wanted to enjoy the world. I mean, one of the scriptures I won't even talk about in here, it says that they even dressed like the world. And God pointed that out to them, and he did. He didn't like it much. But they wanted to be like the world. But there was this God of their forefathers, so we're not going to say he doesn't exist, but we're not going to worship him exclusively. It's kind of like you know, living an ungodly life but trying to present yourself as a follower of God. 
I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do the right things, and I'm going to live any way I want the other six days. And if you try to correct me on that, I'm going to call you an intolerant, prejudicial hater. And the longer I study these minor prophets, the more I realize nothing's changed in these 3,000 years. Nothing. And the thing that strikes me so profoundly is they hear these words of warning, words of warning, words of warning, and I could go on nine times, but they choose to continue to run the other way. Oh, we don't say there is no God. We are just going to live the way we want and enjoy the world the way we want. We'll try to put on a good front, make it look good. Some just come calloused and completely don't care anymore. We need to be very, very cautious in the world that we live in. You know, people say to me all the time, and I mean, when, I, when I use the word Christians, I'm using it pretty generically, okay? I'm a Christian. I believe in the Bible, just not all of it. Well, what part don't you believe in? Well, the, the part I don't like. What do you think? I, I believe it's God's Word, but I mean times have changed. We think this way. We get trapped into this way of thinking, and we hear it so much from the world. We as Christians who supposedly believe it's the Word of God, all of it's the Word of God, it does not change, we begin to get a little wishy-washy in our thinking. We become intimidated by the world, and that's one thing, but then all of a sudden we find our, we find our thoughts slipping over here to align with the world, so the world kind of likes me a little bit. It happens slowly if we let our guard down. Serving God, as long as it doesn't ruin what I want to do. I agree with God wanting us to do this, that, and the other thing, as long as it's this, that, and the other thing lines up about my personal views. As long as it doesn't change what I've got planned for next week, next month, next year. That's not Christianity of the Bible. Christianity of the Bible is He is Lord of my life. I lay down my life and surrender it to Him. Now, we are all humans and we all mess up. I get that. I mean, when Paul calls himself chief amongst the sinners, what does that make me? But I know that's not what God wants. And the Holy Spirit will convict us lead us to repentance, that we can just embrace the benefits of what Christ did for us and live that abundant life. God in this book of Zephaniah through this prophet brings very specific, four very specific charges against the people. And that's what I want to share next. In Zephaniah 3 verse 2, it says, She, now she here is the city of Jerusalem. You could even say this is God's people. He's saying, she has not obeyed my voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. And again, I I probably don't even need to encourage us to think of these in terms of today because it should jump out at us. They don't obey God for their lives. You know, I wish I knew how to live my life. Well, let's see here. I'll give you a book that will tell you how to do that. Well, I can't read all that, can't understand all that. That's not for today. Now, this is the book that will tell us how to live, how to live our lives. God called prophet after prophet after prophet 
to warn his people, telling them how to live their life. Some over here would say, that's no fun. He's taking all our joy and all our freedom. Without understanding, over here we say, the blessings of God fall on those who are obedient to his word. But that doggone thing called pride in our lives, rebellion in our lives, they didn't obey God. Second thing he said was, you didn't receive my correction. How many of us as parents can get so frustrated with our children when they do something wrong or they do something that's very dangerous or could be hurtful and we correct them and then they do it again and again and again? It gets a little old. God is saying, I've I've warned you. I've tried to correct you. Not only have I warned you, I have sent famines. I have sent droughts. I have sent plagues. I have sent warring armies. And you still ignore me. You don't receive correction. And he says, you didn't trust me. You don't trust me. What does it mean to trust God? I believe a simple definition could be just this. To trust God simply means to rely upon him. And when we look at the history of Israel, what did they keep doing? God would show up big time. He would deliver them. He'd do, you know, going back to the Red Sea, going back to, I mean, always bailing them out. And then over and over when they'd feel threatened, they'd go make alliances with the enemies. If we can just make allies with them, we'll be safe. If we make allies with them, we'll be safe. God's saying, I'm your God. I'm the only ally you really need. But you totally didn't trust me and don't rely on me. And then probably the one that would be, and again, (laughs) I always get a little nervous about speaking for God here, but I kind of think this might be the one that would bother him the most. You wouldn't draw near to me. God wants relationship with us. God wants relationship with his people. He wants it so bad. The thing that separated his creation from him was sin. Sin had to be dealt with, and he wanted relationship with us so bad, he sent his son to die on a cross. He wants relationship. And he says, you wouldn't draw near to me. We as people, Christians, are we developing the godly disciplines that draw us closer to God? Are we spending time with God? Are we spending time in prayer with God? Are we spending time in the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God? Are we spending time with like-minded believers? Are we spending time in fellowship with other Christians? These are godly disciplines that will help us to draw near to Him. The busyness of our culture and all the other issues that we face can easily prevent us from doing those things. God wants his people to draw near to him. Then he goes on and he judges. And again, to me, it's just like, ah, this is today. Maybe even this is today in America. He goes right on and he judges and, he, and he, he startles the leaders of the day because first he attacks the princes, the rulers, the politicians of the day. And he says the politicians, instead of protecting the weak and governing in a way to, to, to keep them safe, you devour them. 
They're corrupt and they're crooked. He goes then next to the judges. Instead of meeting out justice, they were taking advantage of the people. They were interpreting things the way they wanted to interpret them. He attacks the judges, the politicians, the judges, and then he comes to the prophets and priests. And oh, that probably startled them a little bit. The, the men who were supposed to be proclaiming the word of God. Today we might just call them pastors and evangelists. He says, you guys are distorting and destroying my word. You're supposed to be shepherding my flock and you're taking advantage of my flock. Instead of speaking as the oracles of God from my word of God, you're speaking things that tickle their ears and they want to hear that will draw big crowds. Doesn't it sound a little familiar? And this is what they think. these are the things that God says, I have had enough. I've had enough. It's hard to see where in this message I could possibly be going to a God who's going to sing and dance over me, doesn't it? Man, he is just laying out the judgment and the justice of God, which is actually a side of his love. But even in the midst of this, this tough love, if you would, he transitions into the tenderness of God's love. In Zechariah 2, verse 3, he says this to his people. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. Perhaps even yet the Lord will protect you. He will protect you from the anger, his anger, on the day of destruction. God is telling his church because he loves his church, hey, there's still time. There's still time to repent. There's still time to seek my face. There's still time to humble yourselves and I'll heal your land. God in his love and mercy is going to leave behind a faithful remnant. Now those might be words and we might put that back in historical context, but I want to be a part of the modern day faithful remnant. I want us to be part of that faithful remnant. I want us to be part of that church, that family of God that draws near to him, that relies on his words, desires to please him, remembers who he is and what he's done. I don't want to just have this casual, yeah, I believe there's a God. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for me. That was really cool. Man, if we have that attitude, we don't understand what took place what was required. In Zephaniah 3.12, and it goes on through verse 17. I can't remember how I broke it up in Scripture up there. But in verse 12, you know, he says, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. God's saying, I want this. This is what I want. It's my desire. I don't want to destroy anybody. You know, the Word of God tells us that his desire is that none should perish. But depending on what you choose as a, a person, you're either going to perish and you're going to be introduced to the God of judgment or you're going to live and experience the fullness of God's glory in his very presence in heaven. He says, that's what I want for everybody. God's not deciding, yeah, he's not quite good enough. I'm throwing him over here. Yeah, she's pretty good. She goes, no. He says, here it is. You choose. You choose. And he lays it out so clearly what the consequences are. And then he goes on in verse 14. He says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. 
Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Who's Zion? Who's O Israel? Who's the daughter of Jerusalem? Really, as you go through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you see those terms used many different ways for God's chosen people, the actual city of Jerusalem. But really, I think in a general sense, when you put them all together, he's for all of you who follow me, all of you who love me, we're part of that group thousands of years later. We are part of that group. And he is saying, oh, sing, all of you that follow me, rejoice with all your heart. Verse 15 goes on and said, the Lord has taken away your judgments. In other words, all that we deserved has been taken away because of Christ. He has taken away your judgment. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Zephaniah prophesied about the destruction that was coming by Babylon, but he also prophesied that there's a day coming, the day of the Lord, but also the day when he comes back for his church. We could look at this whole book and this whole prophecy from an end times perspective because so much of it is a prophecy for then and yet for the future. But he says, in that time, there is coming a time when the Lord is going to come and there will be no more judgment, no more enemies. I'm coming back. Coming back for that bride. Verse 17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he'll rejoice over you with singing. We see how much he loves Israel how much he loves his people, how much he loves us. The imagery of the bridegroom, as I talked about, even as we were singing those songs this morning, the bride and the bridegroom. I'm coming back. I, 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 I want to come back, and I want this, this bride. I want, to take, I want to take you, my bride. I want to take you out of this horrible world, all of this sin, all of this evil, all of this darkness. I want to just sweep you away, sweep you into my arms, rapture us out of here. And he's going to one day. He's going to do that one day. But what we really see is how much God loves and pursues us. He did give up on Israel. My goodness, he could have gave up on Israel in the desert in the first 40 years. He could have given up on Israel the day the, the spies came back and scared everybody. But he didn't. He kept pursuing them. You know, and when, when, when people come to the Lord, I mean, it, well, it, Luke, it's in Luke chapter 15. There's a, two stories. There's a story about the lost coin and the lost sheep. And basically it says, I'm going to find it. I'm going to go get it. And no matter what, I got to have it. But the line that I love that comes at the end of both of this, where it says in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The angels in heaven rejoice. So getting back to God singing, what could make him sing and dance over his people? Simply coming to him. Coming to him. In verse 17, we see the Lord sings over his people. What kind of songs does he sing? I don't know for sure. But you can look back into some of the different psalms and you see 
whenever it talks about saving or redeeming people, he's singing songs of deliverance. So I would guess at least one set of his music is going to be songs of deliverance. The next set might just be rejoicing. I don't know. But irregardless, he's singing. Why is he singing? I mean, if all creation couldn't make him sing, but he's going to sing over you and me coming to the Lord. That's what it does in his heart. And last week, two weeks ago, when I was last here, we did a little bit of a, a word study on that word rejoice that's used here. If you're going to rejoice and sing over the Lord. I mean, in the Hebrew, there's a couple different words that are used to translate into rejoice. But one of them means, as I said last time, to jump and spin around. Caused by, it's like a spontaneous reaction. Can you imagine any emotionally spontaneous reaction? (laughs) If you can't, you're not a Vikings fan. I mean, watch a football stadium full of 70,000 people when the home team scores. Everybody explodes into joy because the home team scored. Now, for me, that's just a tiny little bit of the picture of what it must be like in the heart of God for him to sing and spend and emotionally respond to us becoming his kids, his children. And that's what we see here. He rejoices he, he spins, he dances, and sings over his people. Zephaniah three seventeen and 18. And again, you can look at all kinds of translations, and you can find one that will say anything you want. But I wanted to find one that said what I wanted it to say, so I did just that. In the Jerusalem Bible, some of you maybe never even heard of it, the Jerusalem Bible, written kind of more from a Jewish perspective. Here's what those two verses say. Yahweh, your God, is there with you. The warrior savior. He will rejoice over you with happy song. He will renew you by his love. And he will dance with shouts of joy for you as on the day of the festival. So, all of you that like to dance so much, Casey's just smiling from ear to ear. If you don't know Casey, Pastor Casey loves to dance. She's just imitating Jesus, just imitating the Lord. Just picture that. I mean, we have this attitude or this idea of what what losers we are, how insignificant we are, what failures we are. We let shame and all of these things torment us. Get this picture in your mind. When we come to accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, it makes God so happy He is dancing, He's jumping, He's singing over you. That's how precious you and I are. That's how much He loves us. That's how much He loves us. And that's why He pursues us. I was thinking during the the song and after Casey shared that scripture, you know, the thought that came to my mind was those that I know personally that are going through dark valleys or those that I know personally that don't know Jesus just so encouraged to think. And then we sing that song. He's going to move mountains. He'll do whatever it takes to pursue them. We need to keep that in mind and continue to pray and believe for those that are going through darkness. Those that have not accepted Christ yet. How much fun would it be if you really, really grasped the privilege you have of sharing the gospel with somebody? And they happen to be the day they decide to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. 
And you could turn around and look into heaven and see Jesus dumping up and down and dancing and singing. That's really the picture we're getting here. What it really looks like, I really don't know. But when I look at what the Bible's saying and trying to get across to us, how much God loves us, how much he pursues us, and how much he rejoices in his kids. It should build our faith and love and trust in Christ all the more. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you so much for your word. Even as we hear these prophetic warnings and the seriousness of your judgment, God, we know that that is just part of your justice. Lord, but there is a love and passion that you have for your kids where you pour out your mercy, pour out your peace, pour out your joy, pour out your forgiveness. That you love us so much, you pursue us. When we walk down the wrong path, you're right there trying to get us back on the the correct path. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you in each one of our lives, stir whatever needs to be stirred, reveal those things to us that, that really need to be brought to our attention that we might be that bride that Jesus just aches to come back and receive, that he paid such a price for. Help us to look forward with anticipation to that day. But Lord, until that day, I pray you would stir in us the need, the desire to share this good news with others. That we would not judge, but we would love and share the good news of Jesus, that all may come to know you as their personal Lord and Savior. We pray now as we go our separate ways, God, we just pray you go before us, preparing the way. God, give us eyes to see what you're doing around us. Holy Spirit, lead and guide us. Give us more and more of your love. Help us to see how much you love us, that we may be ministers of that love to others in this world around us that needs it so badly. And once again, Father, this morning we thank you for the blessings that you pour out on us every day. God, I think of the rain that's falling. We just rejoice in that. We give you thanks and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.